Hello, and welcome to Site Visit, a podcast dedicated to engaging architecture everywhere. I'm Ashley Bigham, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Herman. Eric, what do we do on this podcast? We visit a site, and then we talk about it. Exactly. Each episode of Site Visit begins with a visit to an architectural site chosen by the guest and follows with a conversation centered on the experience. If you like Site Visit, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and be sure to tell your friends. To keep up with the latest or to see photos from these site visits, follow us on Instagram, that's at sitevisitpod, or visit sitevisitpod.com. Today we're joined by Raymond Ryan, the curator of architecture at the Carnegie Museum of Art's Heinz Architectural Center in Pittsburgh. An architect, critic, and curator, Ray's work focuses on the architecture and unique urban characteristics of Pittsburgh and produces exhibitions that attempt to move often forgotten cities beyond the coasts, like Pittsburgh, to the forefront of architectural discourse. On today's episode, we discuss our visit to the Alcoa Building in downtown Pittsburgh. Designed by Harrison and Abramovitz, the Alcoa Building is one of Pittsburgh's most notable skyscrapers, celebrated for its structural and material ingenuity, and representative of the city's storied history as one of the nation's most important hubs for wealth, manufacturing, and technological advancements. Okay, so I think one of the most interesting things about Pittsburgh is the so-called um, the Renaissance, the, if you like, the second wave of development mm-hmm. after World War II. Obviously, in the late 1800s, there was so much industry, and there are buildings that represent that very, um, you know, very ornate buildings in some cases. The most important is most likely the H. H. Richardson Allegheny Courthouse and Jail. That's perhaps an exception to this general uh, comment about. Um, manifesting itself. We can see across the street from that building, um, buildings made by Mr. Carnegie or Mr. Frick that were really kind of brilliant, wonderful um, Belle Epoque buildings. But then there's a deep pause with, the, with the, of course, the Depression and then World War II. And so after World War II, you can see that there's a concerted effort by the city. And when I say the city, I mean business leaders in the city, particularly Richard King Mellon. Uh, the um, the government at the time, the, the mayor was David L. Lawrence. He was the, the first, I think, Irish Catholic mayor of the city. Maybe the first Democratic mayor, I'm not quite sure, but but, but he was certainly a very important figure. And since then, I think I'm saying that all mayors have been Democratic mayors. So you had you had Mr. Mellon, you had Mr. Lawrence. And Mr. Kaufman was part of that uh, discussion in the early days. Of course, the department store, obviously famous for falling water, uh, which is you know 90 minutes from here. Uh, but also he had uh, from Wright he had commissioned roughly a dozen projects so we did an exhibition before I got to the museum in fact in 99 an exhibition about uh, the Kaufman family and Frank Lloyd Wright and the various projects for the city so um, there was the intention to make some apartment buildings across the river in Mount Washington and there was the famous project for the point with this enormous uh, coliseum like project with a kind of Jetson aesthetic perhaps um, we have one of the original drawings in the collection, which is an important object for us. Um, Mr. Hines was important. Um, he was working with uh, Gordon Bunshaft. 
uh, I think I'm right in saying that he had met Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, or at least two of the three partners, very early on as a young man, I think in Chicago, and they worked together in the 30s on some uh, uh, business fairs, for example, to make you know temporary structures. So there's a kind of bond there, I would say. And then immediately, soon after the war, um, Bunchaff began working here on the other shore, on the North Shore, um, and did three buildings for them here, and then subsequently made their U.S. UK headquarters, I should say, in Middlesex, Hayes, Middlesex, which has that one beautiful Ezra Stoller photograph, a kind of classic photograph, where the building is low, let's say, Miesian building, and that's at the bottom part of the photograph. And there's a huge, big, mature tree, which seems to eat up nearly all the photographs. So I love that photograph because it, it suggests that, in fact, it's a photograph of the tree. Oh, and by the way, there's this very elegant building there as well. Um, so there were, these, uh, there were these powerful people in town, uh, and although they came from different political persuasions, uh, it seemed that there was a good bond between them. They all seemed to have a good, uh, positive um, sense of citizenship and city moving forward. So at that stage, of course, Pittsburgh was um, very much an industrial hub, uh, very high levels of pollution. Uh, uh, my understanding is that it was very difficult for businesses um, such as Alcoa, U.S. Steel, Heinz, uh, to uh, uh, encourage young executives and their families to move to Pittsburgh because the, the image or the perception of the city was a rather negative one, right? this, this uh, pollution um, uh, city. Uh, and so I think that's part of the reason that there was a concerted effort to rebuild the city as a, let's say, modernist city. And so the Alcoa building, which was the first um, place that we visited together, was an important part of that, right? So it, um, maybe we could describe what it what it looks like and, and a little bit about we were even able to go uh, onto one of the floors, which is now an architecture office in that building. And so we were able to see a kind of office in work uh, in that building. Yeah. So Alcoa, of course, is the aluminum is that right? Aluminum. The alu- <laughs> no, we actually preferred yeah. uh, yes. aluminum. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. Corporation of America. <laughs> right. It was found that the key people in it were, were the Mellon family and the Hunt family were two, certainly two of the key founders um, back at the beginning of the last century. And so if we come forward half a century to 1950, uh, they, it's a kind of complicated discussion, in fact, but my understanding is that they were intending to move to New York, and I think I'm right in saying that Richard King Mellon did, uh, convinced them to stay in Pittsburgh. Mm. And as part of this discussion, uh, they built their headquarters on what's now um, Mellon Square, uh, uh, which is part, in turn, of a series of projects that the Mellons were either directly or indirectly connected to in downtown Pittsburgh um, for the construction of the most up-to-date office buildings and for some public spaces that were at the forefront of um, landscape design and urban or urban landscape design, uh, circa 1950-55, that, that period. So the Alcoa building is by Harrison Abramovitz. Uh, it's the first of a series of buildings that they did here. If if Bunchaft is connected to the Heinz um, um, uh, businesses, um, Harrison Abramovitz are very much connected to the Mellon-related businesses. And at least it may be a little fanciful, but I think of these projects a little bit like um, the Rockefeller Center in New York, that I think the idea was to make a series of uh, buildings and spaces that were in the middle of the city 
where people could congregate and see each other and feel that they were part of a progressive new urban experience. Of course, it's a corporate world, so the Alcoa building was first. I actually, no, I should say that the, the first building, I think, was actually what's rather confusingly called uh, U.S. Steel Mellon Bank in the in the original um, uh, documentation. So the Mellon Bank was downtown, and Harrison Abramovitz made a tall tower right next to it, which was split between the bank and the U.S. Steel um, employees. Um, uh, that's the building that looks most like one of the Rockefeller Central buildings, which of course are 10 years earlier, if not a little earlier again. And then Alcoa was across across the park, or the square from that. The joke in town often is that the 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 very nicely detailed Alcoa building is the is the the if you like the beautiful object that came in the box, which is the the more maybe less detailed uh, first Harrison Abramovitz uh, building for for the Mellons. Then there's another building across the way, a smaller building that looks as a lot of the same language as the Alcoa building, and then across the street from that is the other major, I would say, masterpiece, which is the U.S. Steel headquarters by Harrison Abramovitz, I think almost certainly Max Abramovitz in particular, from the late 60s. So we have two, I would claim, masterworks, Alcoa and U.S. Steel. And then we could say a little later on when PPG, which is Pittsburgh Plate Glass, uh, which is an earlier company again, when they decided to make their headquarters uh, in downtown Pittsburgh. Again, I'm sure it was part of a concerted corporate um, uh, uh, undertaking to make sure that that downtown kept being a vibrant place. Um, went to see, went to call Philip Johnson, and of course, I'm sure that he had this as he knows this area well, and as his father was connected with the foundation of Alcoa itself. Um, I'm pretty sure that he thought, okay, PPG, they need a glass building. So you, I think you can make a very strong argument that the Alcoa building is an essay in. Aluminium, the U.S. Steel is an essay in steel, it's Cortan steel, and that PPG um, place uh, is an essay in glass, even if it's in, I would argue, Phillips and um, Disco Pomo period. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a, a fascinating way to look at this kind of trinity of buildings that um, establish, um, you know, at once a kind of um, a difference from everything around them in terms of uh, uh, their use of these technologies and their expression, but at the same time rooted in the place through uh, material and industry. So I think maybe we could just talk about first the Alcoa building as a facade and as an object. So yeah. you described it, and I think that's a beautiful description of it, as a kind of like object that arrived in another box. Yeah. Because it's it's quite, let's say, if the material ties it to it, as I was just saying, it's quite alien in its appearance. So maybe we could talk about some of its features, probably starting with its kind of uh, iconic windows well, and well, its material. Well, if I say it's an essay in aluminium, uh, then we might say, well, what, what does that mean? Yeah, and, exactly. And so the skin of the building is the is the is the obvious thing to 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 refer to. It's a very slender building. Um, I like the site plan very much. So rather than one big rectangular. Um, if you like lumpen box, it's actually two pieces that slide past each other a little bit. So you get a, a figure. What figure would that be? I'm not uh, sure what figure that is. Like a, uh, sort of two L shapes. Two, yeah, yeah. Moving past and each moving other. Moving past each other. Yeah. And so it's very skillful because it, it allows at the back, as we saw earlier, it allows that older building to remain there in the, in, in the if you like, in the in the elbow. Mm -hmm. And then the other side, uh, which is of course a 
this great classic uh, um, issue, a concern for modernist buildings, the skyscraper that that either lands down on an expecting city or else somehow emerges, maybe like the CBS building up out of the earth, like some mm. kind of, you know, a piece of basalt or something. Mm. Uh, this problem, how, how does the high rise meet the, meet the ground? And so with the uh, Alcoa building, it's a very clever project where they, they slide the two pieces past each other, then they insert was sometimes called the cage, this three or four story uh, aluminum and glass um, uh, cons- um, conservancy, conservancy type building, yeah. uh, which is the entrance. And it's a very, very nice sequence. Yeah. So that's that's an ur- urban thing. But then the, the skin is what makes it so interesting, this panelized system, which I'm pretty sure um, although I don't have the evidence in front of me, was, was, was uh, designed in part by Oskar Nitschke, who had been, I don't know enough about him, but he had been in Paris in the 30s. And you can see there's some great drawings uh, or photo montages that he made of, I'm making this up a little bit, but, uh, you know, uh, entertainment buildings by Champs-Élysées in the 1930s, you know, this, this kind of thing. And um, so the skin is very elegant. It's, I think, very, very thin. Mm-hmm. We can't tell that now from the inside because I don't know if that, what we see inside is a new inserted wall, but uh, originally it's a very, very thin panel, which means that they could be installed very, very quickly. So it, it feels to me even more so today, perhaps, because because we were here there during the day, even more like being on a ship than I remembered mm-hmm. before, being on the plane. Um, so you have this this uh, u- these units that's, that, that slot together. And then within this beautifully beveled or indented um, aluminum skin, which really works to give the building a kind of um, harlequinade uh, facade, mm-hmm. which captures the light, of course. Um, within that panel system, we have these windows that are not, they're not portals, they're not circles, but they, they have these uh, beautifully um, curved edges. And of course, the big, the kind of amazing thing is that they all pivot so that they can be cleaned from the inside. This is the, using gasket technology from the early, uh, early 50s. This, this is an incredible thing from in the early 50s that the whole building could, I mean, in principle, I guess, if it was a, if it was a choreographer so uh, inclined, you could imagine a kind of ballet that the whole building is, is opening and, uh, and closing at the same time. So, so they were really... Obviously, now we use the word iconic, perhaps way, way, way too often. But but they were, I think, they were very intentional as signals of what not only what an American city could be like in the um, post-war period, but also as um, almost as advertising for advanced technology. Right, which makes complete sense given that they were uh, the headquarters and financed by, you know, Alcoa Company or or um, these other companies which are manufacturing in Pittsburgh or um, attracting uh, employees to Pittsburgh, but are also kind of uh, taking on the American city as part of their corporate identity, too, which is, is really fascinating to think about today. And I'm curious how... Um, in, in your role also uh, as a museum curator, you know, how do you see the, the Pittsburgh history of architecture and, and the kind of wealth actually of, of beautiful and interesting buildings here? Um, how does that influence what, um, what exhibitions you show at the museum or how you connect with the city? And um, if you could talk about that. Well, we exist. It's rather unusual to have an architecture department in uh, uh, a museum in a city of this size, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the museum, of course, exists because it's funded by Andrew Carnegie, who, of course, was one of the great um, benefactors of his era. The 
choice of of exhibition subjects uh, it breaks uh, for many years it's broken roughly 50 50 into uh, looking at um, Pittsburgh or topics with some Pittsburgh or regional I should say regional um, uh, connection and then we also want to include exciting things from around the world so we want to mix these things uh, a little bit um, we've developed this strategy recently which we're calling Hack Lab Hack being the Heinz Architectural Centre and Lab for Laboratory did I that word wrong Laboratory where you work on aluminium yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so the idea of those projects is that we try to relax the exhibition model because in a, in a major museum there is a model that, that my colleagues and other colleagues in other museums have a very specific idea about what an exhibition is which, which also often revolves around a checklist and to my mind many architecture exhibitions are not about a checklist that's not the starting point that's a kind of outcome of some sort um, uh, because you can imagine if you're doing an exhibition of paintings they're the paintings that you're showing and as we know for architecture exhibitions typically we're showing uh, representations of the, of the thing itself right so um, and with that in mind also with the idea of um, looking uh, in, a, in a fresh way at topics of regional interest and then also um, um, getting students involved so that there are literally uh, students uh, in the galleries often doing work or that their work is there afterwards as a, as a, for people to see. So these are ways of trying to freshen up this model of the architecture exhibition. Um, so for the first of these, uh, this chain of what we hope will be a sequence of, ex of exhibitions called laboratories. And uh, we thought, let's take on this whole topic of post-war Pittsburgh, which nobody had really looked at in this kind of singular, focused way before. Obviously, it appears in one or two books about the important books about the city. Um, but we thought it was worthy of a focused uh, attention. I think it's it's really great. Um, so you're our first curator we've had, and I yeah. think I want to talk a little bit about um, how you see the role of the curator yeah. either evolving or what are kind of foundational things that can't change. And I want to fold on to that a very specific mm -hmm. idea about uh, working within the context of the Midwest. Well, I have one of my feelings about obviously I'm not from America originally, and so and so one of the things I find. Um, uh, maybe both uh, perplexing but also perhaps with some potential in America uh, is that my feeling often is that it's very hard for architects to establish a critical practice if they're away from the main centers so if you're not in New York and if you're not in Los Angeles uh, it's difficult a couple of I used to be involved with the Venice Biennale and, and so when I first got here uh, in 03 or 04 in fact we took a group of people from Pittsburgh to Venice, and we were just—it was just an experience to bring because it's important for people like the people we just met earlier. These, you know, nice, very nice people, um, for professional people like that to feel they're part of a bigger discussion, right? Yeah. That they're not just doing a nine to five, and you know, there's a bigger uh, cultural uh, family of common interests out there, right? And um, and we went to so that on that trip to Venice, I think in March we we counted that between the American pavilion and uh, architects in the main show and then one or two were in other pavilions there were I think 24 American practices and I think Jeannie Gang was the only architect not from the coasts 
And I think I'm right in saying that in that Biennale, is it possible that 23 were from either New York or Los Angeles? Whatever the exact figure is, uh, it's a huge imbalance, right? And so I think if you're tr- if you're based in a city of this size, or in Cleveland, or in Detroit, or in Indianapolis, or Columbus, uh, how do you um, you know do all the things you have to do to make a living, and and also build up your skill as part of this bigger uh, culture of architecture? How do potential clients, in particular? in mid-sized cities. How do they know about architecture and what's good, bad, or indifferent, right? And it seems to me that that it's very almost impossible to imagine having a critical practice unless you have some clients who are willing to take some chances and are also going to push you in certain ways, in constructive ways, of course. So I'm not quite sure if I have an answer to this, but I think it's clear that in the last 20 years, some places in the States have managed to achieve this. How can, how can um, more places across the U.S., and of course it's not only the, the U.S., but for the purposes of this conversation, um, the U.S., uh, how can they um, uh, nurture local culture more uh, so that um, the public in general and the profession can view each other in a constructive, progressive way. Mm-hmm. So I think making exhibitions in museums is part, a small part of this, yeah. of this, of this conversation. Um, we know that sometimes we make exhibitions that are um, perhaps a little obtuse to some of our, to some of our uh, visitors, but I think our general strategy, our tactic, is that um, it's let's take a chance on some. Some are a little edgier or a little bit more, uh, maybe a little bit more reading or a little bit more knowledge or something. And then other ones are a little bit more, if I say populist, I mean that they're more easily accessible. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think some, we want to bring people in. We don't, we don't, we don't, want, to, we don't want to discourage them from coming in. Um, but I think, I think ideally it would be wonderful to think that, that having exhibitions such as ours um, change people's appreciation of architecture in the constructive sense. That's to say that it's not only, of course, it's very important that they are conscious of Frank Lloyd Wright, and particularly in this town, right? Uh, uh, but they might think again about or twice before they um, go and build a new house without maybe thinking about working with an architect. That would be my hope. One of the things we talk about a lot about operating in the Midwest is uh, um, identifying or finding a way to articulate our value. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could pivot back to your role in the museum mm-hmm. institutionally. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned you guys have um, uh, exhibition space that gets turned over, so I'm sure that's quite expensive, um, or maybe not. But you have you have temporary exhibitions, and so yeah. you're constantly staging things, yeah. constantly fundraising. And I, I want to know a little bit about you know how you articulate architects va- architecture's value um, alongside well, the other institutions at Carnegie. I'm curious about how well, you the, communicate that. I think one of the big issues, my colleagues have heard me say this now for a long, long time, but one of the big issues we have is that. The museum world, particularly the art museum world, because of course there's natural history and science, as they're they're somewhat different in this regard. But um, 
the museum, even still, is predicated upon the idea of the checklist where you have a set, set number of photographs or frame drawings or models and pedestals, this kind of thing. And of course, for a long time in architecture, that's not where the where the action is, I would say. <laughs> yeah. So I think so many of the most important exhibitions or more stimulating exhibitions get, you, you can't build an entire building, but I think many of the best exhibitions get close to simulating hmm. um, an environment of some sort. Right. That's difficult to do in the museum world because it's not what many of my colleagues uh, are trained to think about in terms of an exhibition, right? So that or sometimes is a little bit. Sometimes it was perfectly fine, but it just it just needs a discussion um, about. Um, so when you came, you saw the Art Lubitz mm-hmm. exhibition, right? And so for a while we didn't know what that would be. This this he made this piece. Which he was resisting and giving a name to at the entrance. Do you remember with mm-hmm. the, the sound and the, the, the yes, it had the kind of big columns yeah. and sounds. Yes, yeah. and I think that was important. For, I hope he agrees. That was important for for, for for him. By the way, I should mention in passing that that's one of the very few occasions we've done either a solo show, a monographic show, mm-hmm. or indeed a, 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 a solo show, of course, with a with a local architect. And in that case, first of all, he's an important local architect, but also it was his fiftieth anniversary in practice. That was a clear. Date we had to we wanted to 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 mark and to acknowledge, um, but the the uh, but that's an example of something that in fact it ended up being uh, rather easy to do because uh, he's an architect he can design these things he knows what he's doing <laughs> right and it wasn't crazily expensive so um, so sometimes um, the costing of of installations is very. It's very hard to predict, and sometimes my very professional colleagues um, perhaps um, over, uh, I'm not sure I should say, that it's not true to say they overthink things, but they think about things in a very responsible way. Yeah. And, and, and um, so, you know, my experience before coming here was working uh, in Venice, for the, as I mentioned before, for the Biennale, and, and I'm not suggesting that as a model, but uh, in that case, uh, um, you know, things often happen very late in the day. And there are a whole other set of issues about trying to do anything in Venice, like just to get anything done in Venice is crazily expensive. You know? uh, but there's something about doing, there's something about the energy of doing an installation stroke exhibition uh, uh, at the 11th hour, which is not good for a corporate entity, right, and all of that. But there's something about the energy of that that's very inspiring. And, and mm-hmm. if everybody's on board, that's exciting. Um, we typically work three years out, which means that by the time an exhibition opens, often, often you know, you're already thinking about an exhibition three years later, uh, which is a funny thing about the uh, reality of having changing exhibitions and being on this constant um, treadmill, I suppose, of, of making exhibitions. Um, so the the uh, the um, the excitement of doing a installation like a pop up installation and the schools of architecture as well we do these like in Dublin they sometimes have done these things there's, there's 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 a kind of excitement about that but that's a little contrary to the the um, you know, museum etiquette. Mm-hmm. 
That's so interesting. I had never thought about the museum curation also in relationship to what we do on this podcast, right, which is try to capture an experience of a building mm-hmm. uh, in an audio format. And what you're really trying to do is capture the experience of architecture in a gallery setting. And yes. so sometimes it might be sort of full scale mock-ups yes. or installations. Sometimes it might just be through a particular kind of presentation of certain drawings adjacent to certain models, adjacent to, you know, pieces of buildings and material samples and things like that. And it's a very interesting um, problem to have, right? How do we capture the experience of visiting architecture, which is what um, distinguishes architecture's format from from the other Um, arts? I'm just thinking about um, practices. I know young Mm. practices that I expect to see housed in museums, and if not the very near future, the future. Um, And they are primarily digital in the way that they work. And that is their kind of native medium. Right. And I'm just curious, I mean, I, I think this is something that's definitely uh, at the tip of everyone's tongue uh, in a lot of fields, but especially I've seen in curation. There are yeah. a lot of calls for people with like kind of new ideas on how to deal with this. I know the CCA is going through a lot of this. CCA is looking at it very intelligently, yeah. yeah. So yeah, what, what is your thinking on, yeah, how, how, what, is the, what is the future for the archivist or even the present, right, for, uh, for, the, for the curator in this kind well, of digital landscape? If you go to the ECAM conference, I don't know if you guys have ever gone to that, that's the... I just get the C wrong. I think it's International Congress of Architecture <laughs> Museums. Okay. And that group meets every two years, typically in Europe, for four or five days. A very intense discussion. It comes up. This is one of the big uh, issues, right? Um, chestnuts, real and virtual, right? <laughs> That's a title for, a title for something. And uh, the... Uh, so important thing to say is that we, we don't, we're not an archive, so we don't take archives. Okay. Uh, Montreal, of course, has a lot of archival material. So that immediately is a way of splitting a little bit these things because, yeah. uh, again, going back to the museum, uh, the art, not just this art museum, but the art museum in general, um, has this issue with artists as well about what are the, what are what are museums acquiring with the video artists and people using all sorts of new te- computer technologies? We have a we have a subs uh, a group actually at the museum called the Hillman Photographic Initiative, which is trying to address some of these issues in particular through the dare I say the lens of photography <laughs> uh, uh, to think about how photography is, is what what's the reality of photography now in the world of Instagram and all this kind of stuff. Um, so they're trying to ask, address some of these questions. Um, I think many of the of the architecture departments have tried to work around this a little bit. So, for example, we have a couple of a couple of objects that we usually refer to as models, but in fact are three D prints. So we have, for example, uh, a wonderful, I think, three uh, D print of the Georges Café in the Pompidou Center. But often, it often happens that when you talk to architects that there's, there are one or two key projects and they do have, for example, as in this case, a model, but the model is in, it's, it's been broken up because it was a working model. So it's either uh, dog got it or something, right? Uh, and so they actually thought, oh, maybe we'll make a new model. And then we push that a little bit. So they just, because of course technology has changed in the last 20 years. So they were able to make this beautiful 3D print with some aluminium um, filings in it. So it actually has a little sparkle in it as the real thing does as well. So in terms of um, uh, what new technologies can do, it's a very big issue. We, we don't have a quick answer. This is one way of doing it. Um, uh, another way is that occasionally, um, as again with um, uh, Jacob McFarlane, in fact, 
they had an exhibition in Paris maybe three or four years ago of works that were, as it were, in the computer, things that they were working on at that time. And they made these beautiful prints uh, with vivid colors printed by a very important um, guy in Paris who works with the most famous artists to make these beautiful prints. So they're, they're, they made portfolios of prints. So that allowed us to acquire those. And yes, we can say that um, this has to do with new technology, but they're also objects that have a very strong, um, not just a strong visual presence, but they can be um, an limited edition, right? So I've forgotten what the, what the number is of that, maybe five, I've forgotten. Um, but sometimes you have to work with architects to say, yes, we, you know, we really love those drawings, but can we make them a really, a really beautiful, really beautiful paper? And can you please sign them? And this, and this relates to how the museum thinks. Mm, yeah. Because the museum, sometimes we were asked by some, uh, like maybe board members, for example, our patrons, uh, why can't you just talk to uh, a famous architect and get the get the whatever it is all the all the drawings that they're working that they're working on some important iconic project? But of course, the museum, my colleagues in the museum, don't know how to deal with it. So they don't they don't, have, they don't have the 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 the, 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 the structure to deal with that to to uh, make an, an accession of something to make the acquisition of something to like to guess the accession numbers etc badly expressed, they can cut that out. Um, <laughs> they don't know how to go through the accession process if something is not an original. Mm. This, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is getting into the, into the, the, yeah. the, into the weeds. Yeah. Now, right? yeah. So at the moment we're working with another architect that hasn't gone through yet, so he has to remain nameless. Um, <laughs> but I really like these drawings he has. And so we were talking about how can we, how can we make something it seems kind of absurd if, if somebody heard us as they are going to on this podcast. <laughs> uh, it sounds absurd, but how can you make? How can you have something that's limitless in uh, this in theory, in terms of it being um, distributed around the world, right? And also make something that's unique and special, right? So in this case, we have we're we think it will work, um, making drawings on on metal. Oh, beautiful! So we think this will. First of all, make them into into unique things, uh, but also have strong visual presence. So this is a slightly different angle about how you why you collect something. But of course, in some cases, um, when you visit an office and it goes for whatever technique it is, it's also simple graphite pencil drawing as much as some amazing uh, uh, new drawing on the computer. Um, sometimes uh, the 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 object itself for some reason doesn't have much. Um, uh, presence in the, in, the, in the gallery, right? So you, sometimes you want to urge the architects, particularly the younger architects who are, might be open to this, to think about that aspect of things. Mm-hmm. That it's not just it's not just the, the thing itself, but it's also about its, I would argue, its propagandistic value. Ray Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to bring us to the Alcoa building and for joining us in this wonderful conversation. To see pictures of the buildings we mentioned, visit our website. For Eric Herman, I'm Ashley Bigham. Thanks for joining us.
Site Visit is hosted by Ashley Bigham and Eric Herman of Outpost Office and is produced by Matthew Schulman.